0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
1: Second Thessalonians, chapter 2, turn there. We are going to read the chapter first, and then we are going to start discussing the details. There is plenty of controversy to be had in this chapter. You know, me personally, I try to avoid the controversies, even though I am very conscious of them, very aware of them. This is one of the advantages of doing exegesis. Exegesis, if you don't know the word, means to draw meaning from the text. The opposite of that is eisegesis, which is forcing meaning into the text. All too often, these controversies that I mentioned are a result of people approaching the text with presuppositions, with ideas that they have carried with them to the text. For instance, if you happen to be a millennial in your persuasion, or if you are post-millennial, or if you believe that the church is going to go through the tribulation, if you believe any of those things, you're going to carry that belief with you into this particular section of Second Thessalonians. And so you are going to read the words on the page in such a way as to make them correspond with what you already want to believe is the outcome that you desire to be reached. What an awful sentence that was. (laughs) But I hope you understand what I'm saying. People start with a priori positions, and then they bring those positions to the text. I prefer to let the text just say what it says, and I really like inescapable conclusions. I like it when the text itself corners me to the point where I say, well, that's how it has to be. I didn't grow up believing, for instance, the doctrines of grace, but I couldn't avoid that the Bible kept saying that people are depraved. And then I couldn't avoid the fact that the Bible keeps saying God elects people and that his grace is irresistible. And these, these things just come right from the text. They become inescapable. And that is how I was convinced of the particular doctrines of grace. same thing with my eschatology. There is an eschatology that actually in many ways seems attractive because it is just simplified. It's not complicated. But the fact of the matter is biblical eschatology can be quite complicated. But it would be easy to take the default reformed position, the amillennial position, because it's just easy. And you can just say there, that's simple, that's direct, I prefer that except that it's not what the Bible says. So even though the Bible can sometimes be complicated on these topics, I think if we just continue to adhere to what the words on the page actually say, much of the confusion and complication disappears. I think you saw that when we went through the book of Revelation verse by verse, that even though that can be a daunting book, we were able to make sense of it by just letting it say what it says. I am going to approach 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 based on what it says. And that means that we're going to have to do a little bit of word study and some word etymology. And we're going to have to pay attention to context. 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 How many times have you heard that word? Three times. I've said it three times. Context. We're just going to pay a lot of attention to the context. That's going to help us understand the words 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1 Now we request you brethren with regard to the coming the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit, or a message, or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness... Is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this that he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. That's chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, and as I promised, it is jam-packed, full of eschatological notions, ideas, and descriptions of what Paul calls... A chronos. He lays out an order of things, and this order of things is very, very vital, very important because it helps us to understand whether or not the day of the Lord has already occurred. Apparently, the folks there in Thessalonica, undergoing the amount of persecution and the amount of hardship that they were undergoing, they seem to think that they were actually in the day of the Lord. And Paul, having already written to them in his first letter about the return of Christ and about how the saints are going to be gathered to him to meet the Lord in the air, so will we ever be with the Lord, they took that information and decided that perhaps they had missed it because Paul also told them, About the day of the Lord, this time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, this time of great tribulation, and they seem to think that they were actually enduring it. So Paul, in his effort to give them words of comfort, you'll notice that the chapter ends with words of comfort. Comfort and strengthen your hearts. In every good work and word, he's trying to tell them better news than what they assume they are enduring at that moment. And the way that he accomplishes this comfort is that he describes a timeline for them and says, you can't be in the day of the Lord at this moment because there are certain things that have to happen before that. And because those things haven't occurred yet, then you know for sure that the day of the Lord has not occurred yet Therefore, the things that you are enduring, as we read last week, the things that you are enduring are simply a proof, simply a demonstration that you do, in fact, belong to God, and that's why the world hates you. That's why the world is persecuting you, because you do exist like a bright red flag, saying that God is real and that judgment is real, and the world doesn't want to hear that. And so they persecute you and they try to shut you up. But that is not the same as the wrath of God. I think all of us can say that in our lifetime, we have endured tough days. We've gone through difficulties. We've gone through things, some of us, that we would say, this is going to kill me. This is more than I can endure. This is more than I can stand. But that is not the same as the wrath of God. Imagine what the wrath of God would be. It's hard to wrap your mind around the idea of an almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God being out to get you and punish you and judge you and throw you into eternal darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the fire is never quenched and the the worm never dies. And that's not the same as people not liking you. Paul is going to prove that the Thessalonians are not going through the wrath of God. They are enduring what is a sign, a demonstration of their love from God that he loves them and therefore the world hates them and that is why they are going through the persecution they're going through and he's going to demonstrate through laying out his timeline that they simply cannot be in the day of the Lord and he starts it with what he has already told them in the first letter. He starts it by reminding them of what he has already told them about our gathering together to Christ. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the first letter, we talked at some great length about that word the parousia, Christ being right here with us, alongside us, being visible being right here, right now. That's the parousia, the appearance of Jesus Christ. And the way Paul described it in his first letter, when Christ appeared in the clouds of heaven, we who are alive and remain are going to have no advantage over those who have died in the Lord Rather, there's going to be a trumpet and a shout of an archangel, and the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and then we and they are going to rise into the sky to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we ever be with the Lord and comfort one another with those words. Paul wants you to remember all that. And that is what he has synopsized as with regard to the parousia of our Lord Jesus, and our gathering together to him. Interestingly, just because I like words, the Hebrews used to gather. If they couldn't get to a temple, they would gather together in a place that was called a synagogue. The word synagogue comes from the Greek word synagogue, which really means a gathering place, a place where people can be together and meet together. The Greek word that Paul used here for our gathering together to Christ is episunagoge. And that means we are going to be gathered together with him the same way that the saints of God gather regularly or the way that the Hebrews would gather to study their own scripture. They would meet in a particular place and they would meet as a body of people. That's the way Paul describes our rising into the air to meet our Lord Jesus at his return. And we are going to gather together with him at his parousia, and he reminds you of that so that you will not be quickly shaken from your composure. In other words, that you won't feel fearful, so you won't be distressed. But you'll remain composed, And you won't be disturbed because apparently there were people within the church at Thessalonica who were spreading this story, this idea, this falsehood, that they actually were enduring some amount of the wrath of God. And so he says, it doesn't matter if a spirit, if an angel were to come and tell you this. Or if you get a message or a letter that's been signed apparently by me because I would never send you a letter that says that. So even if you get a letter, even if you get a message, even if someone comes and says, I talked to Paul and he said to tell you this, if they tell you anything other than what I've already taught you and told you, then you know that it's not true. Especially if they say, ...that you are now in the day of the Lord. Then you know that's not true. So we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ... ...and our gathering together to him... ...that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure... ...or be disturbed either by spirit or a message or a letter as if from us... To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So Paul is adamant about that. The day of the Lord has not come. You are not in the day of the Lord. And then he's going to set out to prove it. Let no one in any way lie to you. Don't let anyone deceive you. For it, the day of the Lord will not come unless, and this is the word where so much of the controversy exists. And we're going to spend a lot of the morning now talking about this next word. Because everything else hinges on this particular word. I have seen people who have written and sent me entire books about this word. And, as I said, depending on your a priori position, you will read this word accordingly. The NASB translated it as the apostasy. It is a noun. Even in the Greek language, it is a noun. But the word apostasy is a transliteration of the original Greek word. The original Greek word is apostasia. So you can hear the similarity. Apostasia moved into the English as apostasy. The word apostasy has a lot of baggage of its own. And we'll talk about that as we continue here. But the original word that Paul wrote, apostasia, is a noun. Now, in the Greek language, nouns gain their meaning from their corresponding verb. And the verb from which this noun is derived is apostemi, which is a combination of apo, which is a prefix that just means from, and histemi means to place or to stand. So in its simplest definition, the word that Paul used means to stand away or to be placed away from. That's all it means. And that's really important for you to hang on to because I'm going to say this so many times this morning until I drill it into your head. That's all it means. People have placed all kinds of baggage on it. People have said that it means a great many things that the original Greek word simply doesn't mean. It means to be placed or to stand away from, that's it and so whatever else we say about this text we have to remember what the original meaning of the word is the equivalent English word to the word apostasia would be departure to depart, depart is a verb the noun form would be departure, to stand away or be placed away from something else. Most of the early English translations went with that word, departure, because that's all it really means. It depends on the context to determine who or what is being departed from. You have to read the context to know that. So the Greek noun apostasia It would really be helpful, one of the ways that we do biblical word etymology, is that we look at how else the word is used, especially if we can find the same author using that word again. That's really helpful. Unfortunately, this noun is used twice in the Bible. So that doesn't really help us a whole lot. The only other place that you see the Greek noun, apostasia, is in Acts 21.21. Paul is being accused, and the text says, And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. The word forsake in that sentence, you're telling the Jews that are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That is the word apostasia. It's the only other place in the New Testament where you find that particular Greek noun. So that doesn't help us with the definition outside of knowing that it means to stand away or be placed away from something else that definition works perfectly in acts 21:21 21, 21 because you're telling the jews among the gentiles to stand away from or be separated from or depart moses this word forsake is a good parallel for the idea of departing so that's it. That's what we've got to work with. Therefore, we really have to concentrate on the context to understand who's departing, who they're departing from, where they're going. All of that has to be drawn from the text. When writing to Timothy, Paul did say that in the last days, there were going to be those people who would depart from the truth. That's a fact Paul did write at 1 Timothy 4, the first two verses, say, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, but that is not the word apostasia there. But yes, Paul does say that in the last days, people are going to depart from the faith. Now, Paul used the word apostasia. It had a very definite meaning. We have found the word apostasia in other Greek literature not the Bible, extra-biblical literature. We have also found it on pieces of pottery and clay writing. So we've seen it occasionally, just not very frequently. And so even when we look back historically at the word usage, it's still difficult to know exactly what Paul is saying contextually here to the Thessalonians outside of the fact that we know in every single usage of the word that it means to stand away or be placed away from something. And who is being placed away and who they're being placed away from or what it is they're departing or forsaken is always determined by the context. On mm. uh, one of these clay writings that I mentioned, the word apostasia is used of a runaway slave. Uh, he departed. Okay, so that gives us some sense that this meaning is consistent, this meaning of standing away or being away from. But then the word apostasia moved into the English language was transliterated as apostasy. And the word apostasy means something very different than the word apostasia means. The word apostasy, when you hear apostasy, you don't just think slave departing his master. You think Christians departing the faith. You think people who believed leaving what they once believed. That is what apostasy is. And so when you read, like in the NASB, when you read, unless the apostasy comes first, you think that Paul's talking about the same thing that he spoke of when he wrote to Timothy, that this is going to be a departure from the faith. And so if that were the case, what Paul is saying is, Let no one in any way deceive you, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come until apostasy happens first. This is even more solidified by the fact that the King James translates 2 Thessalonians 2.3 as let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there comes a falling away first. A falling away. Now there is, by the way, a perfectly good Greek word for falling. But that's not what Paul wrote. What Paul wrote was apostasia, a standing away, a being placed away. That's very different from the idea of apostasy and falling away. The first seven English translations of the Bible... The Wycliffe Bible in 1384, the Tyndale Bible in 1526, the Coverdale Bible in 1535, the Cranmer Bible in 1539, the Breaches Bible in 1576, the Beza Bible in 1583, and the Geneva Bible in 1608 all translated the word apostasia by the word departure or departing. Across the board, they all did, because that's what the Greek word means. But over the course of time, as people have become familiar with the transliteration of the word, and then apostasy picked up all this extra baggage, and now we read it and we think that Paul said, first there has to be the falling away, the apostasy, the leaving of the faith but that's not what he wrote. And so I'm going to continue to insist that apostasia only means one thing. It means to be standing away or be placed away. What you're placed away or standing away from is determined by the context. The same way that in the book of Acts we saw apostasia used as standing away from Moses. So Moses is the thing that they were accusing Paul of teaching people to stand away from or be separate from. Same thing in 2 Thessalonians. All the word apostasia means is to be away from, to stand away from what is being taken away, what is being standing away, what is being placed away is determined by the context. Have I beat you up with that enough yet? Because this is really, really important. Because the context is going to answer that question. Paul is creating what I called earlier A chronos, an order of events that has to take place. And in verse 3, he says that the apostasia comes first, and then that man of sin is revealed. So first there's this, then there's this. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, the day of the Lord, will not come. So man of sin, and then day of the Lord. I'm just going to write D-O-L. So the day of the Lord comes after the man of sin, and before that comes the apostasia. Paul then is going to take some time to describe this man of sin, this son of destruction, this man of lawlessness, the way it is rendered in the NASB. That's what verse 4 is about, to describe this Antichrist character, who we should be familiar with after the teaching on the book of Revelation. During our teaching on the book of Revelation, we even went back and took a look at Daniel because Daniel describes this final world ruler. He gives us history in advance and tells us about the king of the north and the king of the south after the succession of kingdoms that are ever going to oppress Israel, after Egypt, and then getting into Assyria and then going on to Babylon, and then going on to Medo-Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. Finally, he gets down to this ten-toed kingdom that he says is ruled by who he calls the little horn. And he describes how he's going to Demonstrate to himself that he is God and how he's going to set himself up in the temple he's going to set up an abomination that makes the temple desolate and even Jesus talks about it and says when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel that's when you know to flee Jerusalem okay well that's all this little horn language this antichrist language this final world ruler language well even Paul talks about it and apparently talked about him in some great length when he was there in Thessalonica. Because he's able to say, don't you remember that I told you all this when I was with you? His description of him is, that man of lawlessness when he is revealed is the son of destruction. Or the son of perdition. And he opposes and exalts himself above Every so-called God not just Yahweh not just the God of heaven and earth but everything that everybody ever worships anywhere he's going to say that he is superior to it all so-called gods all objects of worship so that he himself is going to take his seat in the temple of God the temple of Yahweh proving to himself That he is God. Very interesting little detail there that Paul uh, also included. Uh, He said he's going to sit in the temple, which means there has to be a temple.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: There has to be a temple in Jerusalem in order for the little horn to actually sit in the temple. Now, what we know from the book of Daniel is that one of the ways that this little horn is going to be revealed is that he is going to make a seven-year pact with Israel, and three and a half years into it, he's going to break that pact. But in the first three and a half years, apparently that pact, that deal, that peace agreement is going to include them being able to rebuild their temple which makes sense. He's going to have them rebuild their temple, and then three and a half years into the agreement, when he breaks the agreement, he's going to set up the abomination that makes desolation. He is going to set himself up taking his seat in the temple of God, proving to himself, displaying to himself that he is the only object of worship. He is the only God. And then Paul says, don't you remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things. So Paul obviously was not afraid to talk about eschatology. Paul obviously was saying the same things that Jesus said, the same things that Daniel said, the same things that Ezekiel said, the same prophetic imagery that goes all the way through the Bible, Paul also agrees with. And restates here and puts it into a chronology for us. First, this apostasia has to happen. Whatever that is. Then this man of sin is going to come. And there's going to be a really bad time on planet earth. He's going to come. He's going to make his deal. He's going to set himself up in the temple. He's going to want to be worshipped as God. And then Christ is going to return destroy him as Paul is about to say and then there's going to be the kingdom that happens after that but the day of the Lord that they were so concerned about cannot happen until the apostasy and the man of sin are revealed so far so good? Yep. following me so far? Yep. alright good look at verse 6 And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. This is interesting. This is Paul making a parallel statement. He's continuing to build his chronology. And he says, and you know what is keeping him back, holding him back. This is one of the places, by the way, that convinced me to stop teaching out of the King James Bible and to start teaching out of the NASB because Jeff said to me teach out of the NASB and I do whatever Jeff says and so in the King James it says he that now lets letteth, will let until he's taken out of the way which in modern English is really confusing because it sounds like he who now allows will allow until he's taken out of the way. The old English word let, for any of you who play tennis, you might know that if the ball is caught by the net, that's called a let ball because it's a restrained ball. The old English word let meant restrain, to hold back. And so it says, he that holds back lets, will let until he's taken out of the way. Well, see, I just took all the time to explain that to you. And that's what I was having to do constantly when I was teaching out of the King James. And so I'm I'm grateful to Jeff for saying, you know, in fact, I, I went through a Sunday morning. Now I'm just rambling. I went through a Sunday morning where I spent a great deal of time explaining an old English word. And when I got done, Jeff came up to me and held his Bible in front of me and said, you know, my Bible actually says what you just explained. So really, your life would be easier if you just (laughs) so." So we've got the idea, he that restrains, he that is holding back that man of sin, that man of lawlessness, he's being restrained right now so that he cannot appear on the stage of history. He's going to be revealed, he's going to be unveiled, but not yet because the restrainer is still restraining him so that in his own time, at his own moment, because God is a God of set times, and there is a particular moment at which this man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. And the way that God is guaranteeing that he doesn't jump the gun is that the restrainer is still restraining him so that he can be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness, which is another description of this man of sin, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. John himself says that. John talks about the fact that there are many antichrists in the world, that everybody who denies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is an antichrist. That spirit of antichrist, that spirit of deception is alive and well on the earth. I think we would all agree that that spirit of deception is active in the world And that mystery of lawlessness, sinfulness, breaking the law of God, that continues constantly within the human race. But there is an embodiment of that type of lawlessness, that kind of perdition. And that single person, that little horn, that antichrist character is being held back and restrained. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And I think the reason Paul says that is he's saying, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of evil. Yeah, there's a lot of evil people. Yeah, you see it. When Hitler was on the planet, people were going, well, he's probably the Antichrist. I mean, look, he's, he's being all Hitler-y and everything. <laughs> Many people through human history, people have pointed at and said, oh, that's it. He's the Antichrist. Oh no, Ronald Reagan spells 666. He's the Antichrist. People have pointed at different Antichrists through time. So is Hitler the embodiment of lawlessness? I Yeah, uh-huh, sure, yeah, the mystery of lawlessness is at work. Pol Pot? Yeah, absolutely. So many of the world leaders who have done so much damage and killed so many people, are they... Evil? Well, yeah. The mystery of lawlessness is at work in the world. So Paul is admitting that exists and saying, but don't be deceived. That's not the one. That's a general principle of what is happening in the world because human beings are depraved and sinful and evil. And yes, that exists in the world. But... There is this one coming who hasn't arrived on the stage of history yet because he's being restrained. Am I boring anybody yet? No. No. Okay. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now is restraining him will do so until he's taken out of the way And then that lawless one will be revealed. Then that lawless one will be revealed. Just prior to the lawless one being revealed, here's the lawless one being revealed. Just prior to that, the restrainer... is removed so Paul is drawing a parallel it's impossible to miss this parallel to my way of thinking before the man of sin can be revealed the apostasia has to happen before the lawless one is revealed the restrainer is removed what are the chances these two are the same thing I believe it is based on how Paul is utilizing language. The removal of the restrainer is the same as the apostasia, the standing away, the taking away. Because remember the context that Paul put this entire thing in. He began by saying, Now we request you, brethren with regard to the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Okay, that's the removal of the saints to go meet the Lord in the air, so will we ever be with the Lord. That's the context. For anybody who was ever an English major, I was, if you ever had to diagram a sentence like this, then you know that verse 2 is what's called a subordinate clause. It is helping to define the initial noun and the initial verb, the initial subject and predicate. That is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gathering together that happens. So if you remove the subordinate clause, the very next thing you read is, let no one deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasia comes first. And then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. If you take out the subordinate clause and look at what Paul has just written, he has said, I'm going to talk to you about Christ arriving and our gathering to him. That man of sin cannot arrive until first the removal happens. Then by verse 7, he talks about the mystery of lawlessness already being at work, Only he who now restrains will restrain until he is removed, taken away. I find that impossible to avoid, and therefore, I'm cornered, and I like being cornered. People will point at me then and say, well, then you're pre-tribulational, so that's why you read it that way. No, I just read it that way, and that's why I'm pre-tribulational. The same way as I'm Calvinistic because I read the text and that's what it says. The apostasy of the standing away is the same as the restrainer being removed because the end result of both of these events is the man of sin or the lawless one is revealed. So then the man of sin being revealed Does he just hold sway on the planet? No, because God is sovereign, and even when he is on the planet, proving himself to himself to be God, this is what happens to him. Verse 8, And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming." That is, that one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. With all powers and signs and false wonders, he's going to be miraculous. He's going to be unbelievably great. Right now, not that I'm setting dates, right now we see the Middle East really amping up. And now we see the nations of the world starting to take sides. We see the Middle Eastern nations, like Iraq and Iran and so much of Russia, siding now with the anti-Israel forces. America and England are going to be forced to side with Israel when this war breaks out. This is the greatest potential for World War III that we have seen since, well, World War II. And what was World War II about? Oh yeah, Hitler and the killing of the Jews. Hmm, there seems to be a pattern here. Because the people of Israel, the Jews, the people of God are the most persecuted people in the history of the planet, and yet they're still here, which is just astounding and miraculous on its own. No people group has been as systematically persecuted and systematically destroyed as the Jewish people, and they're still here. You can find them in pretty much every city. So... God, who is a God of set times, who is in charge of everything, has sovereignly designated a day when this man of lawlessness, in his hatred of Jews and Judaism and the religions of God, is going to demonstrate himself to be God And then Christ is going to come back and wipe up the floor with him, demonstrating to the whole world who the actual king of kings and lord of lords really is. He, as the antichrist, as the substitute Christ, is going to take a shot, a pretense at the throne of glory. But the one who ever sits on the throne of glory is going to destroy him by the brightness of his coming, even though his activity is in accordance with the power of Satan, with all his miraculous signs and all his false wonders, and with all the lies, with all the deception of wickedness for those who were perishing because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be safe, because they did not receive. The love of the truth so as to be saved. They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Micah, here, receive this eraser. We'll wait.
0: Huh?
1: Are you going to give it to me? Mm-hmm. Oh, you're saying it's up to me to give it to you for you to receive it? Right. Oh, hmm. Who has all the power then in this receiving? Is that up to you to decide? Because you can decide it all you want. And if I don't give it to you, you got no eraser, right? I have to actually give you the eraser, right? Here, receive it. Here, OK, now, does Micah have the eraser? Yes. How did he get it? I gave it to him. That's how he received it. Do you get the, the idea? Because far too often in modern Christianity, they will tell you it's up to you to receive it. After all, the word receive means it's a gift. And God gives you the gift, you have to receive it. It's not the way Paul is using the language. He is saying there are particular people who are going to follow the Antichrist, are going to follow the little horn, are going to worship him because they fell for the deception of wickedness. That is coming from Satan himself, and it is particularly for them because it is for those who are perishing. And why are they perishing? Because God did not give them the love of the truth, because they did not receive the love of the truth so that they could be saved. Because again, God is completely sovereign in salvation. He chooses the people He's going to save, He gives them the love of the truth. He gives them the faith that it takes to be saved. And if he doesn't do that for you, you're going to be among those who are perishing. And if you're in that camp, you're going to follow the Antichrist, you're going to worship the Antichrist, and you're going to fall for all the trickery and deception of Satan. God has to protect you from this very wicked world and the prince of the power of the air and the mystery of lawlessness that is already at work in the world and if he has done that for you by giving you the love of the truth then you are a really really fortunate person but that also puts you in the camp of the people who are restraining the appearance of the antichrist that means that as regards the parousia of Christ and our gathering together to him, before the Antichrist can come to the planet, first there has to be that separation, that departure, that standing away, or that removal of the restraining force that is holding back the Antichrist. I don't care that that makes me pre-tribulational, It's just what the words say, and that corners me, and I like being cornered, but here's what I can tell you for certain. If God has been kind enough to you in order to give you the love of the truth then he has every intention, the same way that he intends to bring the Antichrist to planet Earth, the same way that he intends that that little horn is going to rule over all the nations of the Earth, the same way that he is planning that his son is going to come back and destroy that being with the brightness of his coming, the brightness of his return, that same sovereign God with that same sovereign plan has every intention of removing you taking you to be with the Lord forever before the wrath of God falls. And that's Paul's point. You're not in the day of God's wrath because if you belong to God, he will remove you before the wrath because we are not appointed to wrath, what grand and glorious news. Amen. Because God knows how to protect his own. He knows how to preserve his own. And he knows who his own are. And if you are counted among that number, you are so very blessed and fortunate. Get on your face in front of that God and be grateful. See ya.